Well, a very blessed evening to all of you on this good Friday. My name is Thomas. For those of you who don't know me, I'm one of the members here in this church. And it's our joy as a church to gather together to celebrate the death of our Lord and our Savior, Jesus Christ. We want to welcome any guests that are here. And we hope that through this service, through our time together, you'll begin to understand a little bit more why we call this day Good Friday. Let's pray for our time. Father, we thank you for the opportunity to glorify you through reading of your word, through praying, through singing, singing your word back to you, and through studying your word. May it be that gathered together this evening, we may glorify you most fully through your son Jesus as we study specifically about his death. Open our eyes, Father, So we can see areas in which we must apply what we hear tonight. We pray these things in your son's name. Amen. Now throughout the history of the world, there have been many nations and kingdoms that have had prophecies, if you will, about the coming of their king. And what they would accomplish. Some of them more fanciful than others. Uh, We can think of the many legends surrounding King Arthur of Camelot specifically regarding the beginning of his reign. The previous ruler, according to this legend, King Uther died without a a suitable heir, so without someone who would take the throne from him. And it was foretold that whoever could draw a mysterious sword out of a a stone, or in some of the tales, it's it's an anvil, a metal anvil, whoever could pull it out, he would be the new king. So, of course, many strong men, knights, nobles, they tried and none of them could do it. But then along comes Arthur. He's able to pull the sword out. And, of course, the rest is history or rather legend. And another story tells us, you see a picture here, of Alexander the Great. Early in his conquest to conquer all other known kingdoms, which was his goal, he came to power when he was only 20 years old and he set out to conquer the world. And early in that conquest... He entered and conquered the small kingdom of, I believe it's pronounced Phrygia, but don't correct me, the history majors out there, but Phrygia, and there was this mythical ox cart, you can see pictured there, that was tied to the wall, and it was tied with this impossible knot known as the Gordian knot that no one could untie. And an oracle had foretold that whoever could untie that knot would not only become the king of Phrygia, but would also conquer all of Asia. So, of course, young Alexander, eager in his conquest, already thinking he's going to conquer the world. When he hears of this, he goes straight to it and tries to untie it. Now, after some time, getting a little bit frustrated, he whips out his sword and with a single blow, slices the knot in half. Now, of course, his followers and his generals looked and said, wow, you have outsmarted the knot. Therefore, the prophecy must apply to you. He was very excited about that. And he went on to conquer much of the known world at that time. Now, these stories, they are fun. They're whimsical for us. Yet, what's interesting about them is they were all written down many hundreds of years after the deaths of the kings that they're written about. So we can generally assume that they are not that accurate. But for us as Christians, we have a different sort of prophecy regarding the coming of our king. B. 
Because for us, our prophecies, they were not recorded after the coming of Jesus, but rather hundreds of years before his coming, written down over the course of hundreds of years by dozens of different men, all speaking the word of God. Let me read a few of the prophecies about the coming of our king, perhaps a bit different from those about Alexander or Arthur. From Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14. Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel, meaning God with us. So he's going to be born of a virgin. It's never been heard of before. Or from Daniel chapter 7, verse 13 and 14. Behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall never pass away. So our king, when he comes, he is going to be given power by the ancient of days, the very creator of heaven and earth. He's going to speak to him before he even comes. And then he's going to have a kingdom, not just in one geographical place, but from consisting of peoples, all peoples, all nations, all languages, with an everlasting dominion. Once again, Arthur, if he existed, is long dead. Alexander is long dead, died at 33 or something along those lines. But for Jesus, we see that he was going to lead a kingdom that would never pass away. But at the same time, from Isaiah 53, we have quite different sort of prophecy. Verse 3, he was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. In verse 5, he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. In verse 9, and they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence. It's quite a different king than the others from the other tales. One who is willing to suffer, to die, who is going to be be tried, be stricken, but not because of what he has done, but instead for the sake of others. And all of these prophecies, our King Jesus has fulfilled. So let's turn our attention now to our text for the evening. It's from the gospel. It's already been read for us. John chapter 19, verses 16 through 30. And we're going to see within this one main point that Jesus the King's death reveals his life-bringing purpose, which is the atonement of sin. And three points, sub-points, if you will. Jesus is the true king of the Jews. Jesus has fulfilled the messianic prophecies of the Old Testament. And Jesus has accomplished the work of redemption. So I'm going to read again the first few verses, 16 through 22, from John chapter 19. So if you have your Bibles, please turn there. John chapter 19, verse 16. So they took Jesus, and he went out bearing his own cross to the place called the place of a school, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. There they crucified him, and with two others, one on either side, and Jesus between them. Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this inscription, for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and it was written in Aramaic, in Latin, and in Greek. 
So the chief priests of the Jews said to Pilate, Do not write the king of the Jews, but rather, this man said, I am the king of the Jews. Pilate answered, What I have written, I have written. Now, while Jesus certainly suffered brutal and graphic torture to his death, that's not the main focus of the author of this gospel, who's John. John records simply, There they crucified him. It's quite short. Quite a bit shorter than the other tales in the other Gospels. But to be clear, the crucifixion came after him being scourged with a whip, his flesh being laid open, after he was mocked and beaten, after he had to carry his cross as long as he physically could out from the city of Jerusalem outside to the place of crucifixion. He was nailed to the cross with long spikes sticking through his hands and through his feet. Then he was lifted up where his position caused him pain and difficulty in breathing to his death. Let's not forget that is what he went through. So the brutality, the physical suffering of Jesus points to his significance, but it also points to the very reason that he came. Jesus lays that out for us. After his crucifixion, John 20, verses 30 to 31, John, rather, John lays it out the purpose of how he recorded the crucifixion when he says, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So John's very clear. The reason he recorded even the crucifixion as he did the reason he included the details he did, and maybe didn't include other details. Now, of course, John was there three years with Jesus. He lived through it all. But why did he not write it all down? Well, he lists it right here. His goal is that his readers, us, would believe that Jesus is the Christ, the anointed one, the Messiah sent, the Son of God, and that believing in him, you might have life in his name. Now, earlier on the day of the crucifixion. We can read in chapters 18 and 19 more of the story. The Jews had brought Jesus from their council where they had condemned him for his blasphemy. They had brought him to Pilate to be killed. You might think, well, why would the Jews bring Jesus to the Romans? Well, because under the Roman law at the time, uh, uh, Judea, the Jewish nation was a vassal state. Under Roman law, They were not allowed to carry out executions. Only the Romans could do that. Now, they were allowed to do other punishments, other beatings, imprisonments, and so forth. They even had their own soldiers of a sort. The high priests did. But yet, they weren't allowed to kill. Only the Romans were allowed to kill. So here they want to get rid of Jesus. They want to kill him. So they bring him to Pilate, so Pilate will put him to death. But they knew if they brought him with simply a religious accusation, something about the Jewish religious law, even if it were as large as blasphemy, claiming to be God, Pilate would refuse to try him. He would refuse to uh, execute him. John 18, 31, we even see that. Pilate said to them, take him yourselves, judge him according to your own law. So the Jews had to think of a plan in which they could accuse Jesus of something that Pilate would actually see as, as, as a grave crime, enough that Pilate would actually want to kill him. So 
They accuse him of trying to set himself up as a king. Now, of course, any king would have been in opposition to the Roman rule. That's a grave threat to Rome. Pilate would have to take notice. Thus, when Pilate does get a chance to question Jesus, in chapter 18, verse 33, he asks him, are you the king of the Jews? Here's how Jesus answered. My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom was of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from this world. And we already saw in the prophecies regarding who Jesus was going to be from Daniel, that his kingdom was going to not just be in one location, but from all nations, all peoples, all languages. It's going to last forever. So Jesus is answering in accordance to that prophecy. Pilate said to him, so you are a king. And Jesus answered, you say that I'm a king. For this purpose I was born. For this purpose I have come into the world, to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. He says, I've come to bear witness of the truth. Pilate asked, well, what is the truth? Well, Jesus had already explained that earlier to his disciples in the upper room discourse. John chapter 14, verse 6, he said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus is referring to himself when he says, bears witness to the truth. He is the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to him. He is the truth. Everyone who is of the truth will follow him. Now, after this discussion, Pilate comes out to the Jews. He finds no fault deserving of death or punishment for Jesus. So he tries to let him go, but the Jews are insistent. They insist on his punishment. So Pilate gives in and he flogs him. So he tortures him. But after he's done, he tries to release him once again. And the Jews replied in chapter 19, verse 7, We have a law, and according to that law, he ought to die because he has made himself the son of God. So again, there are some who claim that Jesus never said he was the son of God. Clearly, the Jews knew otherwise. That's the reason they wanted him dead, because he claimed to be the son of God. Now, at this, Pilate became even more uneasy with the situation. He became even more uncertain. Who is this guy? Who is clearly not leading an insurrection, but yet the whole nation wants, seems to want him dead. And yet, they're claiming he says he's the son of God. When he attempted a third time to release him, the Jews cried out in verse 12 of chapter 19. If you release this man, Pilate, you are not Caesar's friend. Everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. It's interesting that the Jews would basically appeal to Caesar as if they liked being under his authority. Of course, they did not. But in this instance, it benefited what they desired. So as a result, Pilate went through with it. He bowed to the pressure of those around him and he consented to his crucifixion. Now when they crucified Jesus, Pilate had made a sign that hung above his head. Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. Now this was common for the Roman executioners. They would often hang a sign around the neck of the condemned that listed their crime for which they were being punished. As a warning to others, should they try the same crime, they would face the same punishment. But here, actually, for Jesus, it was correctly identified. 
He was the king of the Jews. He had claimed to be the son of God. He had claimed to be the Messiah, the true king. But yet this claim and this sign irritated the Jewish leaders. So they asked Pilate to change the wording. Instead to, this man said he was the king of the Jews. But Pilate had enough of them at this point and just leaves it as it was. He had written it in multiple languages so that everyone who, who was literate and who could read, which was not everyone, but quite a few, would be able to read it and know what was written there. Now it's interesting here because neither Pilate nor the Jews really thought that Jesus was a king. Pilate may have been writing this to provoke the Jews who had caused him so many problems in his reign and his rule as governor there in Palestine. He didn't truly consider Jesus as a king because in his mind, a king had what? Well, he had land. He had a palace or a city, a capital city. And he had an army. And Jesus had none of those things. The Jews as well, of course, did not consider Jesus to be their true Messiah. It's the reason they wanted to kill him. And they condemned him for his blasphemy of claiming to be that king. But yet Jesus, the Son of God, had all authority from heaven and on earth. And he has a kingdom, as he said. It's just not a limited earthly one. It's a spiritual kingdom that transcends place and transcends even time because it continues through this day. He is the king of kings. He is the true savior of the world. So the irony of the situation is that Pilate's sign correctly identified who Jesus is. And everyone who passed by could read it. And if they believed, would actually see this is truly the king. Yet instead of a throne, he had a cross. Jesus is the true king of the Jews. And Jesus has also fulfilled many messianic prophecies from the Old Testament. The Old Testament contains many different prophecies that look to this Messiah, this Savior who is to come. And he would provide salvation for their people. This anointed one is described in a lot of detail as far as where he's going to come from, what his life's going to be like. What will people say of him? What will he be like? What will happen to them? Many different things. But written over, again, hundreds of years by dozens of different prophets, all pointing and fulfilled in this one man, Jesus Christ. So let's pick up our story in verse 23 of chapter 19. When the soldiers had crucified Jesus... They took his garments and they divided them into four parts, one part for each soldier, also his tunic. But the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. So they said to one another, let us not tear it, but cast lots for it to see whose it shall be. This was to fulfill the scripture which says, they divided my garments among them and for my clothing they cast lots. So the soldiers did these things. But standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. Sounds like an eyewitness is writing this, doesn't it? Because it is, right? Continuing verse 26. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her to his own home. After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said, To fulfill the scripture, I thirst. A jar full of sour wine stood there. So they took out a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. 
So we see here they crucified Jesus. How? By lifting him up on the cross. Even in the moment of his crucifixion, being lifted up on the cross fulfills what Jesus himself had claimed would happen. Earlier in John 3, he claimed he would be lifted up. In John 12, he claimed he would be lifted up. But it foreshadowed by, a, by an event that happened in the Old Testament with Moses when Moses was leading the children of Israel and they're still in the wilderness in Numbers chapter 21. They're wandering still in the desert, but they're becoming impatient with God. It's been a while. They're out. They don't have this land that's been promised to them yet. So they started complaining against God and against Moses. So, as a result of them lacking trust in God and sinning against the holiness of God by complaining against him, the Lord sent poisonous snakes among the children of Israel. Many of them were being bit and they were dying. At that moment, in their time of need, they cried out to God and asked him for salvation. And this is what God told Moses to do. It's quite interesting. He said, Make a snake. I'm sure Moses was thinking that's a little bit weird. I would think maybe you would give us some magic pills. We each take one and we're immune to uh, uh, the venom of the snakes. But no, make a snake, a bronze snake, and put it on a pole and lift it up high. Anyone who gets bit, look at that. They'll be okay. You imagine this is kind of a wild story, right? He doesn't say to Moses, hey, run around. Everyone who gets bit, immediately raise the leg or the the arm they get bit and put a tourniquet on it and maybe suck out the venom and put a poultice of some sort on it and go to the medical tent if if they're in the army, right? Or whatever they were supposed to do. Call an ambulance. No, he didn't say any of those things. He said simply, if you get bit by the snake, just look up at that and you'll be fine. Now, it sounds wild, right? Like this sounds like the, the craziest idea ever. Just look up, just look up at that and you'll be okay. Why is it that looking up at the snake on a pole would would do something? Because that would show that they had faith that God himself could heal them. That God himself would provide a way as Savior. And Jesus recounting this story, when he's speaking with Nicodemus in John chapter 3, verse 14 says this, And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. What was this whole snake about? It's pointing ahead to Jesus. Just like those bit by the snake about to die have no hope, all they had to do is look up to the snake. In the same way, Those of us dying in our sin, all we have to do is look up to the Savior on the cross. Look up to him. Don't work hard to get rid of your sin. Just look up and trust him. Don't run around trying to figure out some spiritual ambulance or spiritual medicine. Just look up and believe. And it will be forgiven you and removed. Even Jesus himself, when he was crucified, we see in our story that he was crucified between two uh, different prisoners, two others who had done evil, two other evildoers. And we see that had been prophesied as well. Psalm 22, verse 16, a company of evildoers encircles me 
In Isaiah 53, 12, he was numbered with the transgressors. We see these prophecies being fulfilled. In our text, though, there was two specific ones that were listed. The first was having to do with Jesus' clothes, right? The soldiers divided up his garments. Now, it might sound a little weird at the time, or for us today, but that was common practice for them. Now, you can imagine you're a soldier in the army. Uh, crucifixion is like the worst detail possible. It's like the guard post at 2 a.m. on Saturday night when it's raining. Like the worst detail possible. Who wants to be a part of that? You got to go and gruesomely nail a person to a cross until they die, then take their body down and then go deal with it. No one wants that job. So one of the little benefits they had was they got the clothes from the prisoners. They got their clothes. So that's what they did. They took his clothes. And his outer garment, they, they, they rip it up and, and make four pieces from it. But his inner garment... His tunic, it was all one piece. So instead, they, they gambled for which of the four guys would get to keep it and take it home. This was to fulfill the scripture, which says, They divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. Which we read earlier, had read earlier today, Psalm 22, verse 16 through 18. For dogs encompass me, a company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and feet. I can count my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them. And for my clothing, they cast lots. This is written hundreds and hundreds of years before Christ has come. But in detail is carried out at the moment of Jesus' crucifixion. Jesus tortured, nailed to the cross, derided. His clothing be divided among the soldiers. The second one, uh, second specific fulfillment John gives us in our story here was verse 28. After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said, to fulfill the scriptures, I thirst. Again, there's a lot of detail John could have included, but he includes this. Why? To show that Jesus fulfilled the scriptures, that he was the Messiah. He was the king. Once again, we see a direct tie to the psalmist from Psalm 69, verse 21, they gave me poison for food, and for my thirst they gave me sour wine to drink. The psalmist told us 100 years before the exact type of liquid that they were going to give Jesus on the cross. If you will, it's spoiled wine, right? This is the, the leftover poor man drink, couldn't do anything else with it, give it to the prisoners for his thirst. Now, I don't want to miss out this chance to point out kind of an interesting exchange here. Jesus' word to his mother, which he calls, once again, woman. Again, guys, don't call your mom this. Just leave it with Jesus. Leave it in the past. This is the second time he's done this. He also did it in John 2 at Cana. Uh, don't try it. Especially husbands, don't try this with your wives either. Okay. Let's keep going. It's an interesting point, though. In the midst of his suffering on the cross, we won't spend a lot of time here. In the midst of Jesus' suffering on the cross, Jesus insisted on caring for other people. Yes, he was already carrying the weight of the sins of humanity on himself, but yet he still cared about an individual who was there, his mother and his youngest disciple, John. Now we might think, well, of course, you're supposed to love your mother the best. I'm the youngest son so, of course, I'm supposed to be my mom's favorite son, right? I was born on Mother's Day, in fact. 
Yeah? Best gift ever, mom, right? But interesting for us is Jesus clarifies in Luke chapter 8, verse 21, who he considered his mother. He says this, my mother and my brothers are those who hear the word of God and do it. So Jesus thought that those who hear his word and do it, which would be us as his followers today, are equal family members like his mother is. So for us, a few quick things. If Jesus is willing to care for his mother in her moment of need, how much more would he be willing to care for us in our moments of need? And consider this, in the moment of his greatest apparent weakness, physically suffering on the cross, I mean, from a human perspective, pretty helpless. How are you going to help anyone else? You're nailed up there dying. You know? What are you going to do, Jesus? But in the midst of that, suffering towards his death, he still cared for her. He cared for her. So think about today. How much more today would Jesus care for us? How much more can he care for you today? Why? Well, he's in the fullness of his power and his health. Supplying all of our needs according to his riches and glory. This exchange also illustrates the uniqueness of the body of Christ. It's interesting that Jesus didn't just say to his mother, Mary, don't worry about, sorry, woman, don't worry about it. My younger brothers, they'll take care of you. Because Jesus had other brothers, you know, at least two, James and Jude. Yep, instead, he actually tells his disciple to take care of her. And that goes against the culture, certainly in Singapore, right? You take care of your own, your family members. But here, Jesus actually says, hey, John, you take care of her. Mary, you're going to go live with him instead. And maybe we get a picture of what the church is supposed to be like today. For his own reasons, he assigned John to take care of Mary and Mary to go and live with John. And this simple act should inform on us today. How should we care for those who are in the church? What about those in need within our church? We have widows in this church. Are we caring for them as if they are our own flesh and blood? We have orphans in this church, spiritually, who have been kicked out from their families because of their faith in Jesus, have been cast aside by their families because of their faith in Jesus. Are we caring for them as if they're our own children, our own brothers and sisters? And I know some of you are, but we can do better at that as a church. So Jesus, he is the king, and he's fulfilled all the messianic prophecies about him. But that's not all, because he's also accomplished the work of redemption. So picking up again in verse 28, after this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said, to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. A jar of sour wine stood there, so they took a sponge full of sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. He bowed his head and gave up his spirit. I think what stands out to me in verse 28, knowing that all was now finished. Jesus, Jesus knew. How could he know? How could he know that all was finished? The fullness of God's plan being finished right there. How, how, how could he know that? He was, unless he's divine, he's God himself. Only God would know the fullness of his own plan that was made and put in place before creation, before the foundations of the world were laid. 
that Jesus himself was going to have to come, the Son of God was going to have to come down and be born as a man and live a perfect life, but yet suffer and die in the Christ for the forgiveness of sins. And yes, be raised again on the third day, Sunday, which we'll celebrate. Only God would know that. And Jesus isn't seeking an escape here, but rather wants to accomplish what he had been sent to do. And of course, he knows what it is. So after he gets his little bit of sour wine, he says, it is finished. Loudly, boldly proclaimed. Maybe that's the reason he asked for the wine in the first place. Maybe. Maybe his throat was parched and he wanted to be able to articulate that loudly. It is finished. And with those three words, a lot changed. Now, what is it that he's finished? Right? Sometimes we go in to our favorite hawker and we're wanting something, maybe some, for me, I really like ayam bakar. And I go order ayam bakar and they say, finished. Is that what Jesus is saying? Finished. Noodles finished. No, that's not what he's saying. Not over, not out, but rather done, complete, accomplished. When he says it is finished, he's saying it's done. I've accomplished it. I've completed it. Every requirement of God's righteous law has been satisfied. Now the word translated finished here from the Greek was used, sorry, from Aramaic, was used in a secular way, meaning a payment of debts. So he's saying, I have paid the debt. Or in Indonesian, they would say, I have choked it, right? Like I've stamped that. Lunas, finished, right? It means it's paid off. That debt is paid off. When you go, you have a bill, you get it, fit, you get it paid, they stamp it saying it's finished. That's what Jesus has done. But, but for what? Paying debts. The work that Father had sent Jesus to do, completed Specifically, his work of bearing the just penalty for our sins. As a result of each of our sins, each of our sins, we deserve what? Death. We have fallen short of the glory of God and we deserve death. But Jesus took that death for his own. And there is no more penalty to be paid for sins. Nothing more needs to be done on our behalf. He has accomplished redemption. God's holy wrath against us has been satisfied, has been appeased. He atoned for the sins of those given him by the Father. He's earned salvation for them through the way he lived, through his death, and of course through his resurrection. And additionally, his own suffering is finished. Imagine the king of the universe, the creator of the world, came and was born into a poor family, not to a rich family. I mean, if I'm, gonna, if I'm God, I'm coming down to earth, I'm at least going to be born in the best of the best, right? But no, to a poor family. He suffered. He's derided. He has no place to lay his head. He has no home of his own. His own People, his own, his own villagers, they cast him out. They don't believe him. His own brothers and sisters earlier on and his mother initially didn't believe he was who he said he was. The entire time, his life being tempted by Satan himself to trip up and fall. 
And then, of course, on the cross, bearing that spiritual curse that we deserved. For Jesus, that's done. His suffering is over. He has won. He's defeated sin. He's defeated Satan. So he bowed his head. He gave up his spirit. We see there in those words the voluntary nature of his self-sacrifice. If you have any questions of why Jesus was on the cross, he chose to be there. He chose to be there. He chose to be arrested. He chose to be tried. He chose to be tortured. And he chose to be killed on the cross. And in that moment, he released his human spirit from his body that he may return to the presence of God in heaven. But of course, praise God, the story doesn't end there. Today is known as Good Friday for the good that Jesus has done for us on the cross. Yes, it was the darkest day in all of history. But for us, what a great and glorious day this is. For what Jesus, our King, our Savior, tortured to the death, we celebrate it. Why? Because he did it for our good. And on Sunday, we have to wait two more days, right? But we celebrate the resurrection. Guaranteeing that his death was enough. That we have new life through him. But we shouldn't celebrate this only once a year. But rather we celebrate this every day. And specifically we celebrate this every Lord's Day. When we as a church gather together to celebrate our king as his body, his death, and his resurrection. So for us, how then shall we respond? We should trust in our king Jesus, our savior, who provides for us through his death. Now, there's some of you here, maybe you're visitors, or maybe you're attenders of this church, who have yet to trust in Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins. I implore you, don't hesitate or wait. Repent of your sin. Trust in the saving work that Jesus has done for you on the cross. If you have more questions on it afterwards, feel free to speak to any of the pastors, or to me, or to whoever invited you here to understand more about this. And for those of us who have trusted in Christ, we need to ask ourselves, are we failing, falling rather, to the temptation to think of ourselves as, as maybe better than we ought? Do we compare ourselves with other people and think, well, we're better than them and we've done more good with them, therefore we're more righteous than them? Somehow as if our own goodness is a part of our salvation. I assure you, it is not. The work of salvation was accomplished by Christ and him alone, so trust in him. So let's close with a stanza from the hymn we sang right before I came up here. Lifted up was he to die. It is finished was his cry. Now in heaven exalted high. Hallelujah. What a savior. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we praise you for your magnificent gospel. The good news that you have sent your only son the King of kings, the Lord of lords, Jesus, down to this earth to die on our behalf. Hallelujah, what a Savior we have. May it be that we trust him. May it be that we follow him. May it be that we honor him and bring glory to you through our King Jesus. We pray these things in your son's name. Amen.